0: This Advent, we're studying the oft-neglected stepfather of Jesus, Joseph. I want to point out one more detail in Vincenzo de Rossi's statue. This is the one that's in the Roman pantheon. Um, look at the hand on Jesus' shoulder. Look up here. Um, I'm going to give a detail of it, a, a close-up. Notice the hand is it's firm, it's strong, it's guiding. It's the, it's the hand of a tecton. That's the Greek word for a stonemason or carpenter. The touch is gentle. You see that? Look that. The child's smiling. Look, he's smiling. He's not wincing. So it's not, it's not anything harsh. Joseph's attitude appears to be strength at rest. But notice the set. Look, look at the fingers and the thumb. DeRossi De is absolute genius here. Look at this. The, the digits are cocked. The fingers are slightly being pushed from the hand through the fingertips. A let, let, let little experiment. Here, everybody, take a hand and put it on your thigh. Push out on your thigh just leave it at rest, okay? At rest. Now, you look and there's no, oh, look, some lint. Um, if you look down, sorry. If you, if you look, there's no impression being made in your, it's not moving the fabric, your hand's just at rest. Now, I want you to do this. Rotate your wrist forward so that just the fingertips are on the fabric. Do that. Rotate your wrist forward so the fingertips are on the fabric. What do you notice? Look, look at your, there, there's an impression. It's making a, a little imprint there. You haven't increased the pressure any, but you have changed the angle, and so now there is, a, there is an imprint being made. De Rossi is showing us something very, very important with the set of the fingers. Without being overbearing, without being overpressuring, Joseph is leaving an impression on his stepson, Jesus. You see Joseph's impact in the boy's face. Look, look at this face. The boy has quiet confidence. He's just looked up from Scripture. That's Scripture he's reading, and he's looking out to face the world. From Scripture to the world, and there is a calm strength in his face. Through our investigation into Joseph, we've learned that Joseph was a major force in developing young Jesus. Now, there's one big idea that is repeatedly shown to us in the gospel text. Joseph obeyed in a manner rarely seen among humans, even those who love and trust God. Joseph did exactly what God said, and he did so every time. And regarding his stepson Jesus, Joseph expressed that obedience in three means, three things that he did. He surrendered his rights. Joseph taught Jesus to work. We know that because Jesus is called tecton, and Joseph emphasized worship of God. That's how Joseph made an impactful impression On Jesus. By the way, Koine Greek has a marvelous word for that kind of dynamic impact. The term is tupos. It's your fancy word for the day, boys and girls. You get to say tupos on the count of three. One, two, three. Tupos. Very good. Tupos is a is a word that is is really intriguing. The Apostle Paul uses it in uh, Thessalonians to describe life for the Thessalonians. He says this. First says, uh, chapter one you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the Word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to us all. Example is the word tupos now paul is is saying something really in impressive here, no pun intended, when he uses the word tupos. This is an old word that has a lot of strong back meaning. The very first uses of the word, when the word was made up in, in old, old Greek, uh, it, it described a, a mark left by a blow. Herodotus uses tupos to describe a black eye after a battle, okay? Okay. A few hundred years later, tupos had morphed to where it was used in an almost exclusively positive sense as a positive impression, like when they would take a, what we would call a signet ring or a seal, and you would roll it, you would roll this through wax, and it would leave an impression. That was called tupos. Now, by the Apostle Paul's day, tupos signified any powerful impact, any indelible impression that is left, and it was a positive type impression think this through. Okay, think this through the way God intends. To leave a mark like that, you must be marked. Tupos only occurs when something molded leaves an impression of its own shape. Look, that classical signet ring, it cannot leave this impression until it is carved itself, right? You, You can't make an impact until you have been impacted you can't bless until you have been blessed. You, you cannot shape until you have been shaped. Let me give you a modern example. My dad gave me this one year for Christmas. Um, this, is a, this is an embosser, a little, little thing that dad was concerned that he saw so many books leaving my library and never coming back, and so he bought me this thing, and you take it, and you press it on the leaf of a book, and it says, library, it has an embossed in there, library of Wayne Broderick. Some of you ought to check at home, see how many of these you have. Anyway... <laughs> Just kidding. Just kidding. Seriously, Joseph has been shaped by God. Joseph has been molded, and and because he's been molded, he molds. He leaves an impression. And this is so incredibly awesome. The end of Luke chapter 2 shows how deep that impression was. Jesus continued every one of Joseph's traits. Setting aside the real but incomprehensible issues raised by Jesus' deity, it is clear that Joseph left a very positive impression open your bible luke chapter 2 luke it's the third book of your new testament go to luke chapter 2 and let's read verse 51 verse 51 then he jesus went down with them that's his parents and came to nazareth and was obedient to them his mother kept all these things in her heart remember how joseph obeyed he obeyed that's his number one trait well jesus does the same as we headline in your notes, uh, you got a worship guide when you came in. Inside that are notes. As we put it in your notes, Jesus willingly submits to his parents. By the way, the immediate context makes this obedience even more impressive. The action just before verse 51 reveals how very easily Jesus could have, could have justified disobeying them. Look, look, pick it up in verse 41. Every year, his parents traveled to Jerusalem for the Passover festival. When he was 12 years old, they went up according to the custom of the festival... After those days were over, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem, but his parents did not know it. Assuming he was in the traveling party, they went a day's journey. Then they began looking for him among their relatives and friends. When they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem to search for him. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all those who heard him were astounded at his understanding and his answers." When his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us like this? Your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. Why were you searching for me? He asked them. Didn't you know that it was necessary for me to be in my father's house? But they did not understand what he said to them. The last sentence they didn't understand. How many of you have ever said that to your parent? You just don't get it, Dad. Mom, you don't understand. Raise your hand if you ever said that. Raise your hand. You know you did. All right. Yeah, yeah. All right. Unlike our parents, who actually read our situation quite clearly, they understood all too well, Jesus' parental units really don't understand, right? You see, Jesus was trained by God the Father privately. Jesus, fully human, was blessed to learn directly from God the Father as God the Son. Five hundred years before Jesus' birth, Isaiah prophesied how this would, would occur. Look, Isaiah chapter 50. The Lord God has given me the tongue of those who are taught, that I may know how to sustain with a word him who is weary. Morning by morning, he awakens. He awakens my ear to hear as those who are taught. This was a special training that came directly from God the Father. Jesus, the human boy, was directly instructed by God the Father. Dr. Fruchtenbaum's analysis is great on this. I've never read any that is better. Here's what Arnold Fruchtenbaum says. Morning by morning, God the Father awakened his son and took him aside to to disciple him, to train him, to teach him who he is and what his mission was to be. Yeshua is a unique individual. He is the God-man. He's only one person, but he has two distinct natures, a divine nature and a human nature. While in his deity, he is omniscient, in his humanity, he had to undergo the same type of learning experiences that all humans have to undergo. God the Father did that by waking him up morning by morning to train him in matters concerning his person, his message, his work. As a result of this training by God the Father, at the age of 12, Yeshua knew exactly who he was, the Son of God. He also knew the scriptures so well that he was able to debate them with the scholars in the temple compound, close quote. Okay, so what do we have here? This human boy is God the Son. He's taught every day directly by God the Father. He turns the Jerusalem temple upside down as he spends about 5 days engaging the scriptural experts and amazing them with his knowledge. Yet he was still obedient to his parents, his earthly parents. Look at verse 51. He went with them and was obedient to them. That is absolutely amazing. Consider what that means. Listen very carefully. This proves that submission has nothing to do with inferiority. Nothing to do with inferiority. You know, whenever Scripture calls for obedience or submission, it's become almost a reflex action for modern people to stiffen up the S word. Don't you tell me to submit. That's our reaction. Why? Because we have got this weird idea that being subject means that you're somehow inferior. That is a bunch of nonsense disproven by millennia of human experience, and it's also disproven by Jesus. Tell me, just tell me this. Is Jesus inferior to Joseph and Mary? Is he inferior to them, yes or no? No. He's God, right? Right. Emmanuel, God with us, he is by no means inferior to his folks, and yet he obeys them. They didn't even get it. He truly had every right to resist, but he surrendered his right, and he chose to obey. Second, I think Luke 2.51 shows us that Jesus obeyed in a manner very similar to his father Joseph. Remember, Joseph understood very little of what God was commanding to him, but he obeyed the heavenly Father anyway. Jesus understood much more than any Human did, but he obeyed his human parents anyway. In fact, his obedience is predicted in the rest of that Isaiah passage. Listen to the rest of it. Isaiah chapter 50, we'll pick it up in the next verse, verse 5. The Lord God has opened my ear, and I was not rebellious. I turned not backward. I gave my back to those who strike, and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting, but the Lord God helps me. Therefore, I have not been disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like a flint, and I know that I shall not be put to shame. Wow. Powerful, powerful. Jesus submits to the heavenly Father here. You see that? He obeys his mission parameters. He sets his face like flint, despite the personal pain. Again, I think Fruchtenbaum explains it really well. He says, even when he realized that his mission included suffering and death, he was not rebellious. When the time came for him to fulfill his mission, he gave his back to the smiters. He gave his cheeks to them that plucked his beard. And he did not cover his face from the spittle being spat upon him. He set his face like a flint to fulfill his mission. Close quote. So what's your mission? What's our mission? Whatever it is. Listen, if if you're going to see it fulfilled, you must set yourself to obey. No matter what. If we want to see our mission fulfilled, we have got to obey. Missions are very nice. But you realize, I trust, that a nice vision statement on the wall achieves almost nothing. And that's true in your church, in your company, in your home. Goals and values are great. Mission, vision, they're important. But they all accomplish nothing without committed submission, without obedience empowered by God. Missions and goals and values, you know what they become? They become these translucent dead weights that actually drag on an organization, a church, a family. Without obedience, mission not only cannot be fulfilled, it becomes a weight that will drag your life down. So let's think for a minute about this church's mission, our, our corporate mission together. I'd like us to remind ourselves of it, and as we read it together, let's commit to obey. Let's set our faces like flint to obey with God-empowered obedience. All God's people said? All right, say it with me together. The mission of Frisco Bible Church. We are redeemed community doing the great commission by the power of the Holy Spirit for the glory of God. Amen. Now, read verse two, uh, verse 52, the next verse. We read 51. Read 52. You're still in Luke, right? Okay, Luke 2:52. And Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and with people. As we headline atop the right side of your notes, Jesus grows. He increases, first of all, in wisdom. In fact, this is the second mention of Jesus' wisdom in, the, in, in Luke's writing. The, the first came when he was a little boy. Little boy look, uh, Luke chapter 2, verse 40. And the child, and he used the word paedon. Uh, paidon, it, it means a, a tender-aged child. The child grew and became strong, filled with what, everybody? wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. So, Jesus grows in wisdom. Now, I have spent some time thinking about this. I've been trying to distill growth and wisdom into tidy, transferable concepts, and here are my conclusions for what it's worth. To me, it seems that humility, embrace of challenge, and personal responsibility are the three foundations of wisdom. Wisdom. Some other time, we'll discuss why I have tentatively, at least, reached a conclusion that everything leading to wisdom flows from these three things, the willingness to embrace challenge, personal responsibility, and humility. Some other time, we'll talk about all those. Today, we only have time to discuss the most important one, and that is humility. Humility is critical. If you're going to grow in wisdom, humility is required. Think about the book of Proverbs. The entire book of Proverbs is dedicated to engendering wisdom. What does it start with? It starts with humility. Look, look. uh, Proverbs chapter 1, the beginning. The Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel, for learning wisdom and discipline, for understanding insightful sayings, for receiving prudent instruction in righteousness, justice, and integrity, for teaching shrewdness to the inexperienced, knowledge and discretion to a young man. Stop there. Solomon starts with four fours. Do Do you see that? That the tension builds. He's setting up his big idea for wisdom and all of its attendant blessings. If you're going to get all of this stuff for this, one must, four, 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 one must, verse five. Let a wise person listen and increase in learning, let a discerning person obtain guidance. Listen, learn, ask for guidance, get help. There's an obvious and implied humility required for that. Only when I'm humble will I learn, ask, listen. And and by the way, Solomon increases the punch here by saying this applies to those who are already wise and discerning. Do you see that? A wise person, a discerning person. We never stop growing. That means we never stop growing in humility. Humans have always struggled with humility and always will till Jesus returns. John Milton was probably right when he said that pride is mankind's besetting sin. But, but our age is particularly rough on anyone who wants to grow in wisdom. There is so little listening and learning today because humility is so rare. Lack of humility It appears to be a big problem why test scores keep dropping in schools throughout the United States. Babied Americans have, for generations, by the way, this is nothing new, babied Americans have been told for generations how smart we already are. Everybody gets a trophy. You're all just perfect the way you are. The student is always right. Oh, that one drives me crazy, right? You you don't need, there are no wrong answers. You don't need grace because you're just grand as you are. You know the drill, right? You know that crap. Oop, did I say that out loud? You, you know that, right? Sorry. Compare that with the way that Jesus was taught in his synagogue school. These were the main rules for the incredibly successful Jewish school system. By the way, the synagogue school, the Jews were the very first people in history to have compulsory public education, and they did it exceptionally well. These were their main rules. The rabbi holds kingship over the school. And by the way, these weren't the the dregs of the rabbinic practice. These were positions that were fought over and you had to be really sharp to get a rabbinic synagogue school position. Students stand until they are invited to sit by the rabbi. You stand until they say sit. A student cannot leave without permission. Can you imagine what would happen to all of you? I think your bladders would explode. It's amazing. Um, You have my permission, by the way. You can go. Uh, Don't let them explode. All stand when the teacher enters or leaves. The teacher is only called rabbi. And by the way, if this is sounding kind of harsh to you and kind of draconian, you should understand this. Every single letter I can find, every extant anything I can find in human history from the first cent- couple centuries before Jesus and the first couple centuries after show that they universally loved their teachers. They had a very warm, in fact, often lifetime relationship. So this was, this was not harsh. It had a purpose. School met seven days a week except for harvest, and on Shabbat, on Saturday, you didn't get any new information. You just reviewed everything you had learned that week. I think that is likely a better formula for humility and thus wisdom than our current mantra of the student is always right. Now, You know, pride still flourished in the hearts of students in Galilee. But I think it could have been easier for these folks to learn because that kind of discipline can help one prepare for the humility that is necessary if you're going to grow in wisdom. And think about this. Think about this. Jesus, who is God the Son, who was taught every morning by God the Father, Jesus stood up in order to honor a merely human rabbi. How's that for humility? He submitted himself to a merely human rabbi. Rabbi, and that caused Jesus, who was also fully human, that caused him to grow in wisdom. Jesus is living proof that humility is not thinking less of oneself. Humility is thinking of self properly while thinking primarily of others. But Solomon's not done. He repeats his formula, verses six and seven, and this time he zeroes in on the most important source of wisdom, which is God. Verse six and seven. For understanding a proverb or a parable, the words of the wise and their riddles, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and discipline. Humility is required if you're going to become wiser. Again, humility isn't thinking less of self. Humility is thinking of self properly while thinking primarily of others. And where do we learn to think of self properly? It only comes from God. In relationship to Him, we understand who we really are. Summarize the whole Bible in four big ideas. You ready? Four big ideas. When we when we stop and we really look at at who we are, we look at God and we have the fear of the Lord, there are four things that jump out from us, and scripture shows all of these. We realize we are made in his image. We're made in the image of God. Personally, created by his choice. We also learn when we look at God and we have the fear of the Lord that, that we should be humble because we're sinful. We're fallen. That image of God has been defaced, not erased, but defaced. When we look at God, we recognize that we are loved by Him, loved by Him beyond anything we could ever understand or even imagine. And we recognize that we are rescued not because of us, not any strength of ourselves. We are rescued through nothing we do. It is by God's grace alone, through faith alone. That is a formula for humility. We recognize our worth and our wretchedness, our absolute inability to save ourselves, and the wonderful truth that God has made a way for salvation. All God's people said, Jesus grew in that wisdom, and he developed in stature. What does that mean? He grew in stature. What does that mean? Yeah, he developed physically. I one time asked a a really respected Christian philosopher. We were having a conversation, and I said, why? Why? Is the resurrection of the body such a big deal in Scripture? Um, it, l- let me explain why I asked that. Uh, to me, it seemed like getting a new body after sin is eliminated, uh, that just seemed unimportant. I mean, the great thing is going to be spending eternity in God's presence. The, the physicality of the form seemed superfluous to me. So I asked this respected theologian philosopher, why, why is such a big deal about the resurrection of the body? His answer was so simple and so brilliant, it changed my thinking forever. He only said three words, one sentence. He just said, Wayne, God likes bodies. <laughs> and he's right. God likes bodies. He created them for humans, He made the most intricate machine possible. And even after humans let sin ruin things, God still likes bodies. In fact, He chose to dwell in a body as God the Son. Further, God chooses to indwell humans somehow incorporating, pun intended this time, our physical bodies as part of the Holy Spirit's dwelling. It's fascinating. Read with me about it, please. Our physical bodies are somehow connected in the Holy Spirit's dwelling. You take the underlying text, 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Don't don't you Christians know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God? For you're not your own; for you were bought at a price. So glorify God with your body. Glorify God with your body. Jesus took care of his body, which is really amazing. Think about this: if there was ever a teenager who could have been excused for abusing his body, for being road-hard and put up wet, it's Jesus, right? He knew. He knew that he was going to have a brand new resurrected, perfect body at 33. Right? So why not live like hell till then? But he didn't. The text tells us Jesus grew in stature. He took care of his body. Didn't misuse his physical frame. Now, please don't misunderstand. That's not saying Jesus worshiped his body or he he overdeveloped it. Right? (laughs) Scripture says, and I quote, he had no stately form or physical majesty. Neither do most of us. In fact, we have many infirmities of varying natures, but it doesn't matter. We can still, according to medical wisdom, we can still take care of whatever body God has given to us. I want to show you a brief video clip about this. I want you to look at these these two dogs. Let's see which one's taking care of its body. All right, we got two corgi dogs, by the way. They're in Sichuan, China. The left dog is looking straight ahead. He's doing his work to keep his stature as strong as possible for a corgi, right? The right one is not. Now, notice this. Did you notice this about the right one? The right one keeps looking back at the camera. He's looking for attention while pretending to exercise, right? He's pretending while he looks for attention. Which one are you? Are you right corgi or left corgi? Which are you, right corgi or left corgi? Don't be left shark, be left corgi, all right? We, we need to, my fellow doggies, we need to reasonably care for our bodies. Remember, Joseph taught his stepson three great examples, three great examples. He surrendered his rights. He, he, he taught Jesus to work, and he emphasized worship. That's all how Joseph obeyed, right? Well, that middle one, work, teaching him to work, that requires the very things mentioned, the first three things mentioned in Luke 2.52. You know how this works. If you stagnate in knowledge, what happens? The, the marketplace passes you by, right? You have got to continually keep growing in skill and wisdom and skillful living, or you're, gonna, you're not going to be good at work. We've got to take care of our bodies for as long as God intends them to last. Jesus was a tecton, for goodness sake. That's the Greek word we translate carpenter, but in Israel, they didn't, they didn't do very much work with wood because there's not a lot of wood. Most tecton in Israel worked in stone. So you can think of Jesus as a bricklayer or a stone cutter. Um, he was much more similar to Fred Flintstone than he was to a carpenter, okay? And... Uh, he didn't dress like that. But anyway, you get the, so, so when you think of that, if you're going to do that kind of work, you better take care of your body. You don't watch, those of you that are in construction, you don't watch your fingers and toes, you're not going to be working long. right? You, you have to care for your frame. Jesus grew in wisdom and stature. By the way, the other thing necessary for healthy work is being likable. Favor with people is really important if you're a small businessman like a tecton. If you're a jerk right? Business dies out pretty quickly. Jesus grows in favor with people. It was part of how he learned about work. They favored it. People liked Jesus, and his attitude may explain why. You see, Jesus was a servant. He led by serving people. From, from his surrender of heaven and even coming to earth, to taking the form of humanity, to, to being subject to his earthly parents, to washing feet, to willingly dying on a cross, Jesus descended into greatness. A young man in Arkansas forwarded a great example of this to me. Um, he, he told me about this band. Um, brothers, Aaron and Jesse Stone, they have a band called My Epic And they wrote a song called Lower Still that really captures Jesus' descent into greatness. Look at the lyrics here. Lower Still. And by the way, since it's called Lower Still, everything's in lower case. I kind of like that. Look, he's covered in dirt. The blood of his mother has mixed with the earth, and she's just a child who's throbbing in pain from the terror of birth by the light of a cave. Now they've laid that small baby where creatures come eat. Like a meal for the swine who have no clue. Swine, that's a nice touch, isn't it? Who have no clue that he is still holding together the world that they see. They don't know just how low he has to go. Lower still. Look, now he's kneeling. He's washing their feet, though they're all filthy fishermen, traitors and thieves. Now he's pouring his heart out and they're falling asleep. But he has to go lower still. There's greater love to show. Hands to the plow. Further down now, blood must flow. All these steps are personal. All his shame is ransom. Oh, do you see, do you see just how low he has come? Do you see it now? No one takes from him what he freely gives away. Beat in his face. Tear the skin off his back. Lower still, lower still. Strip off his clothes. Make him crawl through the streets. Lower still, lower still. Hang him like meat on a criminal's tree. Lower still, lower still, bury his corpse in the earth like a seed, like a seed, like a seed. Lower still, lower still. The earth explodes. She cannot hold him, and all therein is placed beneath him, and death itself no longer reigns. He cannot keep the ones he gave himself to save. And as the universe shatters, the darkness dissolves. He alone will be honored. We will bathe in his splendor as all heads bow, lower still. Say the last line with me altogether. All heads bow, lower still. Man, that's good. That is really good writing. Do you want to have influence? Do you want to grow in favor with people? Serve them. Go lower Still, Joseph taught that. Joseph impressed surrender. He taught tecton, which requires wisdom and stature and favor with people. And Joseph taught Jesus worship, something we discussed a few days ago. So it's no surprise that Jesus emphasizes worship in his life, in his ministry. Luke tells us that Jesus grew in favor with God. That is a necessity for any human to enjoy a relationship with the Heavenly Father. But of course, I know what you're thinking. That brings up a question that you're asking in your, in your internal imitation of our church administrator, Laura Aldrich. You are, um, you are thinking, how could Jesus grow in favor with God if He is God? Right? Great question, Laura. Thank you for asking. Um, by the way, that was one of her children, who shall remain nameless, requested that imitation. <clears throat> yeah. And, um, and Martin McDonald of our pulpit team gives a great answer to you, Laura. Look what he says. As fully man... Jesus experienced all of the things mankind does. Thus he is qualified to be Savior and also able to relate to us and the struggles of life this side of heaven. His relationship with the Father, described in Luke, must be seen in this context. Well said. Think about all the time Jesus spent in the temple, in prayer, in Scripture, in in, in worshiping the Father. He learned all this from his earthly Father, not merely his heavenly one. Remember, Remember what we read earlier. Joseph took Jesus to the annual Passover celebration, right? Sacrificed, he sacrificed, left work, no income, paid money to go be with his family in communal worship. That is a huge factor in teaching children how to grow in favor with God. You've probably read the headlines that church attendance is falling rapidly in most Western countries. Church attendance is falling really quickly the last few years. Besides being a spiritual tragedy in many lives, this is a serious societal problem. However, the cause you hear the most about is the church. Every commentator, at least everyone that I have read, seems to think the only way to increase church engagement is to radically change the churches. I respectfully disagree. The attendance slide in many places is not because of the churches, although there is Always much to change and improve about every church. Always. But there is one very clear cause of decline in worship attendance, and that is a lack of healthy fathering. It it is by far the biggest problem in church. Let's think it through. Why give Jesus a superfluous human father? Right? Joseph isn't necessary, right? He's not necessary. And yet, for growing in favor with God, it is fathering that makes all the difference. You and I have discussed before a number of studies done about this in Switzerland and in the U.S., um, but I've never read you this. This is George Barna's conclusion of all those studies. He looked at them all together, and he said this, "...the research on the impact of a dad's faith and practice on their families is overwhelming." If a father does not go to church, even if his wife does, only one child in 50 will become a regular worshiper. If the father does go regularly, regardless of what the mother does, between two-thirds and three-quarters of their children will attend church as adults. If a father attends church even irregularly, between half and two-thirds of their kids will attend church some regularity as adults. Close quote. This is not denigrating the import of moms. It's just a fact that if you want to increase worship, you've got to increase the influence of good men. And therein lies the clear problem in Western countries. In Western countries, fathers are absent. They're absent. So kids learn to demand their supposed rights instead of learning to surrender them. Kids learn to shirk work instead of learning to work with their hands. Kids learn to de-emphasize worship instead of following their father who emphasizes worship. Now, of course, many of you are wondering in response to that, in your um, Super Mario imitation, this was the next request on my list from a child, but what if there's no father in the life of kids you love? Thank you, Mario. Great question. Thank you for asking. The first step, if there's no father in the life of kids you love, the first step is actually to thank God that he is and always will be father to the fatherless. Every human being can always engage with the true Father who never leaves. All God's people said, amen. Along with that, how about we light a candle instead of cursing the darkness? Don't have a healthy dad around? Get into a church group where those kids can really get to know some godly grown men. If you go to church here, you should praise God that so many gentlemen serve in this church. So get your boys into trail life, your, all your kids into Awana. Bring them to Sunday school. Bring them to youth group. It makes a massive difference. And if you're one of those men who are blessed to influence young lives, be like Joseph emphasize worship whether you're working or reading or playing or walking let all your life be worshiped to the lord you know jesus was really blessed his earthly father's business was to encourage the heavenly father's business that's why that's why derosi look at the look at the, the statue derosi has jesus holding the scroll of scripture in his hands as joseph is making the impression that's purposeful it's also what makes luke 249 so brilliant Look at this. The phrase, in my father's house, could be, and often is translated, about my father's business. Now, knowing Luke's love for subtle nuance, I think it's very likely that Jesus is speaking here about both of his fathers. Remember, in the original Greek, there's no capitalization. So there's no capital F. There's no, there's no minor F. So, so Jesus may be pointing out that his earthly father's most important business was worship of his heavenly father. That's pretty cool. That's the tupos. That's the impact that Joseph leaves. He impresses submission and growth and worship. Now, what about you? What kind of impression are you and I leaving? If our tupos is positive, the people that we engage will submit to God's will, they will grow strong, and they will emphasize worship. But in order to pass that on, we must first be shaped ourselves. We have to see those traits developed in ourselves. Joseph and Jesus surrendered rights. That doesn't mean they didn't stand for what was right. Oh, no. Joseph fled oppression. He went to Egypt. Jesus cleansed the temple. But overall, Joseph and Jesus taught subjection to authorities, even those who appear much less advanced than you. Right? How well do you and I do that? You know, you know what I hear? I hear a lot of indignancy, entitlement, and outrage. Man, do I hear a lot of outrage. I don't hear very much about submission to God's will. That needs to change. We need to work on that. We also need to work at the things that God has given us to do. And whatever our jobs are, we need to keep growing wiser. We need to take care of the bodies that God has given us, that He loves, and we need to grow in favor by serving all, going lower still. All God's people said, above all, we need to grow in favor with God. Joseph emphasized worship, and Jesus grew in favor with God, which is a worthy subject for prayer. Pray with me. Father, I ask you to bless me. I ask you to bless my brothers and sisters that we will grow in favor with you, that we will emphasize worship in our lives, and that we'll grow in our work. Whatever it is, it doesn't matter. but but we'll become wiser and wiser all the time. We will take care as, as, as much as we can of the bodies that you love and that we will serve all. We will serve. That's how we lead. Father, I pray for the humility that is required for that. I pray for the surrendering of supposed rights that is so difficult in our time and maybe more necessary than ever. And I recognize that I am not capable of those things, nor are my brothers and sisters, but you are. And I beg you to accomplish them in us. Oh, and Father, I I pray for anybody who's studying with me today that is not a believer in Jesus, that you will will change their life right now. Friend, listen, you are are sinful. The image of God has been defaced. And God is completely holy. That separation between us and God cannot be bridged by us. It's not possible. You can't become holy. But God loves you so much that Jesus went lower still for you and for me. And he died on the cross, giving willingly, giving up his life to pay the price that had to be paid for our sin. And then the earth could not hold him. He burst forth. And glorious day so that anybody who trusts him can follow him. We're changed. We are put in him. We are clothed with his righteousness. Trust him. Trust Jesus alone right now. Confess your faith in Jesus. Just talk to God. If you just just trusted Jesus as your Savior, would you raise your hand? Please. Everybody else is still praying. Just raise your hand. Look up at me. I want to rejoice with you. Good. Father, I praise you and I thank you for these believers in Jesus. And I ask you to encourage them and deepen them. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to take our offering. Please make sure you put your visitor card, your prayer card in there or in the boxes at the back. And A.J. Rinaldi, one of our pastors, has some words for us. Good morning, everybody. Uh, I'm excited
1: because here we're approaching a new year again. With the new year, have new opportunities to get involved in some classes that we're going to be offering. Some of you may remember last fall, uh, maybe, I don't know, maybe August or September-ish, I was up here making an announcement about the classes that we were doing. to be in, I was telling a story about... A- telling me that he never knew what was going on. So I said, well, you read the back. I would encourage you, no matter how long you've been married, if you're newlywed, if you're engaged, you're going to want to get involved in this class. It's not going to be one particular set of curriculum. They're going to draw from a number of resources, and I'm sure it's going to be a lot of fun knowing the two of them. Second, if you're a new believer, if you've recently come to put your faith in Christ, and you're wondering what's next. We have a new class called Starting the This is going to be fantastic not only for the new Christian, but also if you've been a believer for a while. Or maybe have some questions that you've always wondered about. You're going to want to be a part of this class. Now, this one's going to be at 8.45 in the mornings at the Connection Center. The marriage one's going to be at 10.15. So you could do both if you wanted to. And then come to the third service. That'd be a funny one. Now also I want to remind you, this is a great time of the new year uh, to get involved in men's ministry if you're a man. We have groups meeting literally every day of the week. So there's really no excuse if you're looking for something to get plugged into. We have groups meeting each morning and during the week. You can learn more information about that once again at the website and the men's ministry page. I would like to personally invite you, if you're not involved in the group, I meet with a group led by George Hillman on Monday mornings at six thirty at Roots. So not only do we have great Bible study and fellowship together, but we get to eat brisket for breakfast. So it's pretty cool. Now the women, for you women, Jen Bryant has some fantastic new Bible studies starting up as well in the new year. There's always something available for uh, for every woman. And of course, lots of special activities throughout the year, so you want to be sure to visit the Women's Ministry webpage for that as well. But remember, if you're ever wondering what's going on, read the bulletin, look at the website, and what? Go to the
0: back. Brilliant. Brilliant. I, uh, I shared with the, um, the elders recently at a meeting. Mm. This was in November. I was telling them about a conversation I had with the two executive pastors. Um, and we were talking about the end of the year and how blessed we were and how rich we are in, in our church. And, um, and I said, Yeah, but I'm concerned about year end giving. And they said, Why? And it's a big part of any nonprofit. You live, much of your budget comes in the end of the year. I said, Because it's a strong economy. And. Um, and I'll, I'll just explain, I know that sounds weird, but I'll just explain what I've watched over the years. When the economy is really strong, people don't give as well to the church at the end of the year. I'm not sure why. I, I have some, I've talked to the chairman of the board about this. I have some ideas that I can trace to the years when the economy's bad. When the economy's bad, actually, our year in giving is better. And I think it's because when things are tight, we all wisely, work really hard as stewards to get our priorities straight. We, okay, there's only so much money, things are kind of scary, we're going to get everything right. And so then our priorities are right, and we give first unto the Lord and to support His church and the most important lasting things, and then we buy presents and do all the other stuff. When there's lots of money, when things seem rich and everybody around us is wealthy, which is great, and that's a blessing, um, we have a tendency. It's not that we're horrible stewards. We just have a tendency to, to not think about the priorities, so that is an afterthought. So anyway, I shared this with the guys, and I said, uh, I'm... I'm just concerned. I'd like us to pray. And so we did. We'd been praying that the year would end well. And our CFO sent me a report that I got yesterday, and it's not going well. Um, So we have a policy here that when it's not going well, we trust God and we tell the people. So I would like you to trust God with us. There's no need to worry or panic, but we do want you to, in every way you can, to make a healthy gift for the end of the year. As guided by the Holy Spirit, it would be grand. And please pray, would you? And then we're going to rest in the Lord and leave it in His hands. Amen? All right. Trust God. Tell the people. It's pretty simple. All right. Prayer team, would you come forward? Prayer team would love to pray with you, but as they're coming, I want to remind you of something. You, every one of you, whatever your age, you are making imprints. You're making impact. You are, you are gently, or maybe not so gently, making an impression, Tupas. tupos. I want to thank you because the impression you make on me is very positive, and I am very grateful for you. Make that kind of impression all the time, even on Monday. All God's people said? Amen. Let's stand up and let me pronounce a blessing, and you can come join our prayer team. Now may you and I go in the grace of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, and by His grace, through His guidance, may you and I leave a positive impression because that makes all the difference. In Jesus' name, amen. See you Tuesday night, Christmas Eve services.